834, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Let's get right to it. A lot of stuff to cover on today's program. We start off this show like we start off every show. Three big things. The big story of the day, obviously, was the vote yesterday afternoon in Congress. The House of Representatives, by a three or four vote margin, approved major reforms to the Affordable Care Act, uh, the new health care bill, which would essentially repeal and replace Obamacare, was passed by a very, very narrow vote. It now goes to the Senate, where I think it's going to probably be considerably altered. But the, the essence of what is going on with the new health care bill, and, and let's be honest here, in the history of this country, once a major entitlement bill has been passed, it's never been rescinded. This would be the first time if the Senate goes along with it, because Obamacare, a major entitlement bill. The other reality, and people don't like to grasp this, is that Obamacare is not sustainable. We were talking about this yesterday. For example, what's happening is that the number of insurers who are participating in these various state exchanges are dropping out because the way it is set up, they cannot make any money. There are not enough healthy people paying premiums to support the people who are not healthy who are getting benefits and as a result they're losing money so now you have what started out as if you want your doctor you can keep your doctor if you want your network you can keep your network that's not true I mean if you live in Milwaukee County you have a very narrow choice of providers you're essentially limited to one health care network and there's limitations with that and it is going to get worse Iowa was always held up as sort of like the, the gold star example of how Obamacare can work. Well, the new reports are out are suggesting that it appears that there's going to be all three of the insurers who participate in the exchanges that are created by Obamacare, all three of them are going to get out for next year because they are hemorrhaging money, leaving Iowans with no choices at all. So something needed to be done. So what the House of Representatives has done is they have passed a bill which significantly alters, but they would argue, you know, keeps a number of the protections. The argument, the big argument you're hearing is pre-existing illness. Will it still be covered? And the answer is yes, it will still be covered. However, what the bill would do is it would give the states the option to create their own sort of exchanges to deal with this. If you were getting insurance in Wisconsin, before Obamacare, I think you were much better off than under Obamacare. I think premiums were lower, and I also think that your choices were a lot greater. We had a special high-risk pool to deal with the people who you know, had the pre-existing illness conditions, and I think it worked pretty well. This law, if it goes into effect as written, would give... Again, the ability of people to states to say, hey, if we think we can build a better mousetrap trap, we will be able to do it. And I think it's tough to argue that what we had in Wisconsin before Obamacare was, in fact, that better mousetrap. In any event, the stories today, it's one after another after another. And if you want to understand why people hate politicians, there's about a 30-second example of that that happened yesterday. When it became clear that the bill was going to pass the House, Democrats started singing and chanting. These are supposedly grown-ups. These are supposedly grown-ups 
tasked with making decisions in the future of this country, um, they started behaving like Chicago White Sox fans. Actually, that might be an insult to Chicago White Sox fans by chanting that annoying na-na-na-na, hey-hey, goodbye. And the point was, uh, because you have voted for this, you are going to lose the majority. You folks are going to lose your jobs. That was the reaction of the minority Democrats, who'd been minority Democrats for at least the last six years. And so that's the story. Did Republicans wave bye-bye to their House majority by voting for this? All right, big thing number one, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The reality is something needed to be done. And I do not think that a year from now, Look, I don't know what's going to happen in the Senate. I don't know what final version is going to come out. But this idea that yesterday ended Republican domination in Congress, that there's going to be this huge uproar that people are going to stand up and say, okay, we're we're going to vote out the Republicans because they took Obamacare, which was failing, and have made changes to it, I think that... I think that's wishful thinking. I don't think there's going to be any significant number of Republicans who lose their jobs because they decided to vote for this change. As a matter of fact, I think if they're able to get it right, there's going to be some Democrats who are going to lose their jobs because they didn't vote for it. Is this the demise of the Republican Party? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I would not be so sure, but we discuss. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 840. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 844. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you heard that chant yesterday, it was a handful of Democrats chanting that at Republicans in the House of Representatives saying, all right, you voted for health care reform. You will lose your seat. All right. Is this exuberance or is this reality i wouldn't count on it if i was the left jim and wawatosa jim good morning you're on 620 good, WTMJ. good morning jeff uh i do not think this is the end of the republican uh majority uh you know, obamacare was a broken system it was not sustainable and very expensive for holders yep and and getting more so getting more so on a daily basis and i heard that i i was watching c-span and watching the vote because i was very concerned about that and all of a sudden i heard that chant after the vote was done and i i'm a republican i thought it was a republican saying goodbye to obamacare and i'm thinking (laughs) oh my gosh i can't believe my party's doing this right this is not a way to to form some unity and then I find out it was right. the Democrats. I'm saying, ah, oh, typical children. Well, and, and see, and that's the way it was. In, by the way, that was the way it was initially reported. Was it was Republicans saying that to Obamacare, and then a number of the networks had to correct themselves afterwards, saying, "Oh, we we kind of got this wrong." But yeah, I mean, what a what a childish sort of response. Now I understand that there have been people like individual supporters who, when Obama left, some people sang that. When George Bush left and got in a helicopter, some people. People saying that, but these these are congressmen. These are congresswomen. For goodness sakes, this this is the future of America. These are the people that are making our decisions. Yeah, I'm embarrassed for our country. I really am. I really am. Um, thanks to call four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, here's the bottom line of all this. Um, it is true. It is true that one of the things that led to the Republican takeover of Congress 
in 2010 was a negative reaction to Obamacare. There, there's no doubt about it. It cost, I, I've seen estimates that it probably cost Democrats somewhere between 25 and 30 seats in the House of Representatives, as well as, you know, control of the Senate. So there's no question that voting to enact Obamacare cost people seats. The question is whether repealing and replacing it is going to cost people seats as well. Now, again, I fully acknowledge fully acknowledge that you, you have a situation where it's an entitlement program. We've never gone back on an entitlement program. And I appreciate that the way that the, the media is spinning this, oh, this is going to be absolutely terrible. It's going to be horrible because it gives states the rights to not guarantee that the same way we have and cover pre-existing conditions. Well, yet yes, it does. But what we're doing now is unsustainable and it doesn't work. It also... I mean, give states the rights to uh, essentially develop programs which would say to insurers that you don't have to offer all the things that you offer now. The idea that, you know, maybe if maybe birth control, for example, doesn't need to be something that is automatically covered. You know, people want it, that that's fine, and then they can pay for it. But it's all these different things that ended up ratcheting up the cost of items. Is it possible that there could be a political backlash for this? Yes. You know the media is going to try to foment this. You know that the left is going to try to foment this. But I guess the bottom line is, right now the jury is out. The one thing I don't think that the Republicans have done a good enough job of communicating about is, is the fact that Obamacare is failing. I mean, I was talking about this with the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, when we interviewed him two days ago. And and all the comparisons now are, well, let's look at what the plan the GOP is talking about and see, and they're dropping provisions. They're not saying that, you know, the health care has to cover all these different types of things. And they're comparing it to Obamacare in 2013. That's not the comparison, because even the most hardcore Affordable Care Act advocates, I think, if they were put under oath, would acknowledge that what is going on with Obamacare now is not sustainable. Premiums are going up and going up and going up. It cannot continue. Insurers are not participating. So, all right, you might say this is how something was working in theory in 2013. Three, four years later, it's not operating that way. There aren't the choices. Something needs to be done. Now, I understand from a political perspective, maybe – Maybe it would have been better just to let the Affordable Care Act crater. Maybe it would have been best to just let what's going to happen in Iowa next year, if something's not changed, happen all over the country. Namely, no choices at all for people. But I don't think that's responsible. I don't think you can do that. There are too many people who depend on having a way that they can get insurance. And the truth is nowadays, because of the Affordable Care Act, there's not a private insurance market. I mean, it's not like you can go outside. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's getting ready to retire. And, you know, she was exploring all sorts of different options, including um, she has the ability because she's retiring now. One of the benefits is she could continue on her company's health insurance plan. And she was pricing out. All, she was telling me she's pricing out all the different things and trying to decide where to go, including she was saying, I was going to try to look in the private insurance market. Well, there's no private insurance market anymore. It's either. You go on to Obamacare. You live in Milwaukee County. You've got one, maybe two choices. There's limited as to the the networks. If you want to have, I think it's Aurora around here. If you want something other than Aurora, you are just out of luck as a general rule. And she's talking about that. She said, this is just, you know, 
it's one of these things where your choices are so limited and you know what happens if that one network that one provider decides that they're no longer in the business one of the other interesting things that she was mentioning to me that i found to be fascinating it's something again that you have to look at the, the only reason obamacare has lasted as long as it has is because we have the taxpayers subsidizing people's premiums what my friend was telling me about was the, the whole notion of said well okay that like next year because she's retiring her and her husband they're both retired so they have very little income they have however huge assets they've saved all their life they have huge assets you know you're not going to have to have a tag sale for my friends but because they have very little income they qualify for massive taxpayer subsidies because it's not based on your assets it's just based on your your income for that year and my friend is saying to me wow you know, the, the truth of the matter is, I mean, I love, Jeff, having you pay for, you know, my health insurance. That That's tremendous. I'm glad, but I don't need that. There's just something wrong when somebody that's worth lots and lots of money um, ends up getting subsidized by people who aren't worth <laughs> as much money. It, it's just it, it's just a mess, period. And so I think ultimately once people realize what a mess this was, if they ever come to that conclusion, think that they're going to appreciate that something needed to be done. Eddie in Wauwatosa. Eddie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Well, good morning. I'm listening to your discussion this morning, and I hear the Democrats singing songs and Republicans voting or not voting because they're afraid to lose their jobs, and, Republic- and Democrats will get their jobs back. It's all about their jobs. What yeah. about us people? Yeah. Honestly, what about us? Right, because right, that's all you care about. You want affordable health care, um, and you want to be able to have choices and options. Right. Who cares whether some politician gets elected? We send people to hopefully do the right thing, right? Absolutely. No, thank, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm with you. I am with you entirely. One of the things that has been frustrating to me ever since President Trump took over, and I understand he is divisive. I understand that there's people who just don't like him. I understand that you've got the folks like Hillary Clinton who just figure that they're part of the resistance. But And I have said this as long as I've been doing a radio talk show, whether Bill Clinton was the president or whether George Bush was the president or whether Barack Obama was the president. I never want to be put in a position where I'm rooting against America. And that is the position that a number of people in the opposition have essentially They've kind of uh, stuck to this. We're going to we want this to fail and we're not going to support anything that comes out of the Republican administration. We want this to fail and we want people to lose their jobs. Well, I'm kind of with you, Eddie. I, I want America to prosper. I want the stock market to go up. I want us all to have jobs. I want people to make money and I, I want affordable health care with different choices and that's not what we are going to have in the next year or two unless something happens it's 853 coming up next big thing number two marquette wins round one stick around it's 853 it's 856 jeff wagner 620 wtmj new job numbers are out and they are positive um in april amid milder weather employers added 211,000 jobs um, the unemployment rate down to 4.4%, which is very, very low. Um, the economists expected 190,000 jobs, so this is more than that. That's good. The bottom line is it's good news. More people are working. Big story number two. 
It is an unfortunate one for people who care about academic freedom. Um, over the last several months, we've been following the story of Marquette University political scientist and professor John McAdams, who has been, as a conservative on a very liberal campus, McAdams has been a thorn in the side of Marquette University for years and years. He regularly writes on a blog called, I love it, The Marquette Warrior, where he exposes a lot of the politically correct foolishness that goes on at Marquette. In my opinion, Marquette has been out to get him for a long time. Um, What happened was, in November of 2014, McAdams learned about an undergraduate student who had been told by a grad student instructor that he could not express his disagreement with same-sex marriage in her theory of ethics class. This is, by the way, a Jesuit institution. So McAdams writes that, tells that story, names the graduate uh, instructor, and then um, Marquette summarily suspends McAdams, says, okay, you know, by, by doing this, you know, you caused embarrassment to the student. He said, well, he's not really a student. What she was is she was acting, you know, as an instructor. She's the one who was, you know, responsible for saying, hey, I'm not going to tolerate, you know, alternate opinions um, in my class. But Marquette used this in my in my opinion, as a as a basis, and I would argue pretext, but you know, people can decide otherwise, um, at, for for getting rid of him. So they suspended him. Now he remains suspended. Ultimately, um, has been terminated. The matter is working its way through court. Yesterday, Milwaukee County Circuit Judge David Hancher um, issued a ruling siding with Marquette University. I've read the ruling. I, I think. I think with all due respect, Judge Hanser got it really, really wrong, and the matter is going to be appealed. But at least, you know, round one goes to Marquette University with their ability to again stifle conservative speech. Professor McAdams says that he is going to appeal. I think he has a good chance of winning, if not at the Court of Appeal, certainly if the matter gets and is taken by the state Supreme Court. Um, as it stands now, though, Marquette uh, has been able to, their decision to fire McAdams has been upheld. Um, what I've done in response to this, I don't care how the I don't care how the legalities work, but ever since this decision was made, as a graduate of Marquette University Law School, I haven't given them a dime. I mean, I just that was that was my easy excuse. There's lots of people that are asking for me for money, lots of worthwhile causes that you can support, and if this is going to be where the university comes down, stifling academic freedom and freedom of expression from conservative professors, fine, they can do it. They can do it without my dough, and I think that there's a lot of alumni who've responded accordingly. But round one in the legal battle between McAdams and Marquette goes to Marquette. But it's not just a a one-round fight. We'll be interested to see where this all comes out. All right, in a couple minutes, big story number three, Delta Airlines in the news again. I'll tell you the story, and we'll discuss. It's 859, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Here is a story that you just never, ever hear about. And I, I don't remember a similar situation. I'm not saying that that there haven't been occasions where it occurred, but I don't remember a situation of somebody who has accepted donations for an elective campaign giving the money back out of the goodness of their heart. Now, sometimes what happens is, you know, people take campaign donations that are questionable and they have to give the money back, all right? Sometimes when people completely and totally leave politics, 
they make a decision to give some money back, but typically no. Typically they end up keeping it and using it for you know whatever they choose to do later on. Well, that brings us to the story of State Supreme Court Justice Annette Ziegler. Annette Ziegler, by the way, is one of the really good ones. She was one of our headliners at uh, Insight a couple weeks ago. Um, she was just reelected, running unopposed to a second 10-year term. I mean, th- this shows, and a matter of fact, this shows on one hand how the Democrats in Wisconsin are in such complete and total disarray. And I understand that you know the Supreme Court races aren't partisan races per se. But let's face it, you've got... And Justice Ziegler is part of the conservative bloc. You've got the left in Wisconsin that would love, but it's not had a lot of success winning state Supreme Court races, but would have loved to take her out. They couldn't even find anybody to run against her. And that is a tribute, number one, to the fact that in Wisconsin we've made it very clear that I, I think when it comes to Supreme Court judges, especially justices, especially as a way to rein in rein in a lot of the stuff that comes out of circuit courts, like in Milwaukee County and Dane County, for example, you want conservative justices. By the way, Cindy and Greenfield. Cindy and Greenfield is the winner of our Follow the Brewers contest today. She gets a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the Mets and is entered for our drawing later this morning to win a chance to follow the Brewers to uh, St. Louis. So congratulations again. Thanks to all our sponsors. So in any event, uh, Justice Ziegler elected to a second 10-year term running unopposed. Well, she didn't know that she wasn't going to have an opponent. And so she was, and, and the way the way you judges and justices raise money is a little bit different than the way like a, a typical partisan politician would raise money. But, but there were, there was a committee that raised money on her behalf to be used in her campaign. Um, what ended up happening is, like I say, there was no, there, there was no challenger. So she had all this money that, you know, wasn't going to be used on on a campaign. Um, She had, as of March 20th, she had about $284,000 in her quote-unquote campaign war chest. But like I say, there wasn't a campaign. Now, even though she ran unopposed, there were campaign expenses, and, and you didn't know necessarily whether she was going to have an opponent or not, so there were some expenses. But the bottom line is, she didn't have to buy advertising time on radio or TV. She didn't have to you know, spend money doing the typical campaign thing, so she was unopposed. Most politicians would keep the dough, wouldn't look back. They, they'd keep the dough, they'd leave it in their campaign accounts for, for whatever. Not just a Ziegler. And what I think is a and I don't want to say completely unprecedented, but a very unprecedented decision that reflects, I think, very, very well on, on her. She's decided to give the money back to donors. She sent out a letter to her various campaign donors saying, look, here, here's the deal. I didn't have an opponent. Um, I am the first justice to run unopposed in over a decade. I appreciate the fact that you supported me. I appreciate the fact that you gave me money, um, and but but we didn't need all the money that we raised. So she says, "Look, uh, you know, we've been doing the math, and we estimate that of the different donations that we received, we spent about thirty percent. So that leaves us with seventy percent of donations that were given to us for the campaign that that we we haven't spent." So here's what we're going to do. She sent out a letter. Because of that, we'd like to return 70% of the contribution you made to my campaign. I want to give you 
your money back because I didn't spend it. And she sent a letter saying, you know, in order to receive your refund, please return the enclosed postcard by May 31st, 2017. You can also send us an email. Thank you for your support, your friendship, and your generosity. Um, what an incredible thing. I mean, this is something, the, the Russ Feingolds of the world do not do this. Let me just put it like that. Um, but Justice Ziegler said, hey, you know, I raised this money. I raised it in good faith. People donated this money to me. I would legally, she would legally be entitled to keep it and to use it to, I don't know, give money to other candidates or use it 10 years from now or whatever. She could keep the money. There's nothing that says she should give that dough back. But she decided it was the right thing to do to give the money back pro rata. What a great what a great move, and I think that speaks quite a bit to what a classy person uh, Justice Ziegler is. All right, coming up, big thing number three, what were they thinking at Delta Airlines, or do they have a point? Were these out-of-control passengers? I'll tell you the story, and we will discuss. It's 916, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 918, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Some say he could be a future gubernatorial candidate. Now he will co-chair a major economic organization. Waukesha County Executive Paul Farrow joins John McCure at 320 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right, here is the story. April 23rd, a couple is on the red-eye flight. So they're flying overnight, coming back from Maui. It's a flight from Maui to Los Angeles. They are booked on a Delta airline flight. So it's them, and they've got two small children, like ages like one and two. All right, let me, let me read you the way the Associated Press reports this. Brian and Brittany Shear of Huntington Beach, California, say that they were returning from the Maui airport with their two toddlers. They wanted to put one of the children in a seat they had bought for their 18-year-old son who had flown home on an earlier flight. Okay, so this is, this is the background. The, they've got two kids, one age one, one age two. And then they've got an 18-year-old son. So apparently they're on this family vacation. What they had done is they had, they had three seats, one for the 18-year-old, one for mom, one for dad, and the two kids. The two kids, I guess the plan originally had been to keep the kids on their laps well they decided that's not a good idea and so what they decided to do is they bought a separate ticket for the 18 year old and sent him home on an earlier flight so they've now still got that extra seat so they get on the plane with the two toddlers and they have a car seat and what they do is they've got they've got the third seat so they put the car seat in the, the third seat. They go to put the kid in. So that's that's the background of, of this. It gets ugly at that point in time. Now, apparently, there are, there are standby passengers. The flight isn't overbooked, but they're standby passengers. So Delta can sell this vacant seat to somebody else. Um, what, what happens is, I guess, a, a Delta employee comes up and says, um, no, you, you can't, first of all, you, you can't have that seat. The guy says, I paid for the seat. Say, no, you, you cannot have that seat. And they say, well, the dad says, well, look, no, here, here's the deal. I paid for that seat. It belongs to 
It belongs to my 18-year-old son. He's not on this flight, and we want to put one of the toddlers in it. Now, under under the rules that you under the rules, you you can you can change the names, and as long as there's enough time to you know run the name, in this case of the infant, through security to make sure that the infant isn't some sort of terrorist. But Delta says no, no, you, you, we're not going to do that for you. Delta also says that you need to you know hold the, the kids during the, the takeoff, and then they say that um, federal rules require that children under two must stay in a parent's lap throughout the flight. This is actually false. The Federal Aviation Administration actually says that infants should be in a car seat, although if you're under two, parents can hold them in the lap. The the dad says, look, here's the problem with this. So the kid's going to be fidgeting. This is going to be a nightmare trip. That's why we've done this. We want to just let him sit in the car seat. At that point in time, um, the supervisor apparently says, look, here's what's going to happen. Um, you're going to be arrested. You know, unless you leave the flight right now, you are going to be arrested. The two of you are going to be put in jail. And then what's going to happen is federal authorities are going to come in and maybe maybe your children will be taken away from you. <laughs> so th- now this is, again, all captured on, on again on cell phones because people are are paying attention. The dad says, I bought the seat. You're saying you're going to give away that seat that I paid for to somebody else. That's not right. Um, and he says, look, I, th- this is the safer way to go. Um, Delta also urges parents to purchase seats for children younger than two and to approve or use approved child restraint systems on their flight. All right, so ultimately what happens is they are thrown off the plane. They are told, unless you leave the plane, you know, the whole plane is going to have to deport. This plane isn't going anywhere as long as you are on it. Um, you have to leave. The guy says, well, this is a red-eye flight. we got two infants. We have nowhere to stay. What are we supposed to do, sleep in the airport? And the Delta representative says, it's not our problem. You guys are on your own. And they throw him off the plane. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, admittedly, admittedly, the situation is made worse or created to an extent by the fact that they want to put the infant in this seat that they have purchased for their 18-year-old son. And in order for that to fly... Somebody at Delta would have apparently had to run the name of the infant through the computer system to make sure that that there wasn't a problem with that. All right. So they didn't do that in advance. So they are at fault to an extent. But did Delta handle this the right way? I mean, you've got a husband and a wife with two infants. They've got a car seat. They want to put one of the infants in a seat that they have purchased and they are essentially treated like criminals. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It is amazing. And then told, and then told essentially, hey, if, if you give us any more resistance, you are both going to be arrested. You're going to go to jail. You might lose custody of your kids. Get off the plane. We don't care if you don't have a hotel room. I mean, why would anybody fly Delta? 414-799-1620. And I understand that, that the dad here should have should have put the car... Should have put the seat in, should have transferred the names on the tickets. I, I get it. He's wrong to that extent. But 
is there no common sense anymore? And let's be honest. What Delta was probably doing is I think that they had an opportunity. They saw they had a seat and they had a chance to sell it to a standby passenger. Jeff in Milwaukee. Jeff, you're first on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is did uh, Delta not learn anything from what happened with, uh, you know, with the United Airlines uh, fiasco and, and, you know, treating the customer with the... Uh, with some more uh, respect and... Uh, and common know, sense? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, this is just the sounds ridiculous. You get it. And if the person actually paid for the seat, right. you know, they, should, they shouldn't be selling the seat a second time. Um, right, and then know. telling them, okay, no, we, we don't let you use car seats when actually the, the Federal Aviation Agency says, no, you're supposed to use car seats, you know, for, for this situation. It's it's just a, I mean, thanks. For, yeah. And again, I appreciate that dad is probably, dad should have transferred the name of the seat from the 18-year-old son to the infant. I, I get it. Dad should have done that. But after that, I mean, really, this is how Delta treats it? Um, Chris sends a note. My wife and I travel a decent amount with our three kids. We have two eight-year-olds and one at 15. We are familiar with the family on the Delta flight, and it's ridiculous. The airlines encourage the use of car seats and approve that the son's ticket may be used by the dad. We're planning a trip to L.A. this August, and I'm a bit concerned. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is the whole uh, Clark, Clark Howard used to talk about, about the customer no service. It's these airline people who, and look, and I appreciate it's a tough job, but these airline people who decide that they get the God complex and that they're going to be the ones that tell people how they have to handle it and do not use the common sense that God gave a goose in trying to figure out how to handle certain situations. The guy paid for the ticket. He's got two infant kids. He wants to put one of the infant kids in a car seat in the vacant seat that he has paid for. You would think that the people at Delta, if nothing else, to deal with safety so they don't have to have the kids in their laps and to make it more comfortable for all the other passengers, would be applauding this. Plus, he bought an extra ticket for his 18-year-old kid to avoid this entire thing, and yet you have the pinheads at Delta who decide that they're not going to do this. When will these people learn? Delta, for its part, is now apologizing, and they're saying, we handled this wrong, and we're going to try to make this right. We're going to offer them credit or money or whatever. Just get it right in the first time. place. It's 928. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So Jay Cutler, Jay Cutler is going to be retiring um, in part because nobody wants him. And Jay Cutler is now going to be, apparently he's cut a deal, he's going to be working as a commentator on Fox. Um, He will be calling football games, work as an analyst in a three-man booth with Kevin Burkhart and Charles Davis. I I do not know who those guys are, but it's obviously not the A-team. And now Jay Cutler is going to join them. See, here's what's going to be interesting about Cutler. The first time he is covering a game and a quarterback throws a really, really stupid interception. I, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear Cutler's analysis. I, not, not, boy, was that a stupid play, but boy, I understand how that guy did it. I think of all those bad plays I made. Or when somebody chokes at the end of the game and snatches defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, 
I, I just I, I want to hear Cutler talk about that. And if this guy has one critical word to say about anybody playing the NFL, you will understand that there's, um, I don't know, call it irony or hypocrisy or whatever. I'm personally very sorry to see this happen because as long as Jay Cutler was playing quarterback for the Chicago Bears, you could pretty much guarantee that the Bears were going to be at the uh, at the bottom of the standings. This I was in Las Vegas when they were doing the NFL draft, and I was sitting in a bar. What a surprise that would be. I was sitting in a bar, and they had the draft on. And there were a bunch of people who were fans of the, the various teams. And when it came out that the Bears got fleeced, traded away the second pick, third pick in the draft to move up to the second pick, and then gave away all these other draft picks to get this quarterback that nobody's ever heard of. I mean, the mocking, the ridicule. I, later on that night, I was playing blackjack next to a guy from Chicago, and I started teasing about it, and he just said, just don't even get me started on how screwed up the Bears are. It's now coming out that the Bears could have probably gotten the same guy that they got with the second pick if they had kept the third pick and kept all these other draft picks. But... um Good news is it's still always going to be the Bears. All right, 414-799-1620 is the number. I think this is the right result, but I am curious about what you think. Here's the deal. Um, We have had in Wisconsin an unemployment compensation fund, and it's been around since the 1930s. The way unemployment comp works is that if you get fired, essentially you get to collect for a a you know a limited period of time. You get to you get to collect it if you lose your job. And the rules are very, very lax. Pretty much un, you will collect unemployment comp. You'll be entitled to it. Um, you can be a bad employee and you can get it. But essentially, unless you have engaged in the standard is something they call substantial fault. And what substantial fault means is essentially acts of an employee where um, you are violating reasonable requirements of the job. But they don't include minor infractions of the rules or inadvertent mistakes or failure to perform work because, you know, you, you weren't trained appropriately. Historically, this has kind of meant stealing, things like that. I mean, if, if you engage in willful misconduct, you're not going to get unemployment comp, but otherwise you do. All right, so here's what happens. There's this woman who goes to work for a Walgreens store in Madison. And she works there for the better part of two years. She starts in July of 2012. She works till March of 2014. She's a cashier. I would hate to be a cashier. I mean, I've always, I, I've always been sympathetic to cashiers who probably aren't making a ton of money to begin with. And you know, you're you're scanning things, you're doing these checks. Okay, over the almost two years that the lady worked for Walgreens, she had eight cash errors. Eight. Now, obviously, you want people to be perfect, but let me just say, I don't, I don't think eight cash errors over an almost two-year period, given that you're standing for eight hours a day, or six hours a day, however long, you know, four or five days a week, being a cashier, eight cash errors over a two-year period of time doesn't necessarily seem to be a lot. Um, one of the errors was she accepted 17 cents in cash as the balance on a $6.17 bill paid mostly by somebody with a WIC card, um, she took the WIC check before its date of validity. So um, her last error 
was not asking to see the ID of a customer who used a credit card that turned out to be stolen on a $399 purchase. So, I mean, she she makes some mistakes, but these are all small mistakes. I mean, we're, we're not talking about thousands and thousands of dollars, and she, was, she wasn't stealing the dough. She makes eight mistakes over the course of an almost two-year period, and Walgreens, they fire her. They say, okay, well... You know, you're you're just not working out. We we've tried to tell you about these mistakes. We you know you you didn't you didn't check the ID you were supposed to, so you're fired. Okay, she loses her job of two years. What she then does is okay, I've lost my job. She goes and she tries to get unemployment compensation, and Walgreens fights her. They say no, no, we shouldn't have to pay because she was substantially at, at fault. In other words, um, you know, she just her conduct you know, violated the reasonable requirements of this job. And they say, you know, we don't want to pay. And a state agency said, no, you don't have to pay. Then the matter got appealed. And yesterday, and what almost never happens, a unanimous, a unanimous state Supreme Court reversed this ruling and said, look, she's entitled to workers' comp. Walgreens had every right to fire her. But they should have had to pay her workers' comp. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think the court got this exactly right. I, I think, especially in jobs like this, the woman's been a cashier for two years. You're handling all sorts of transactions. I'm sure it's incredibly busy. Should she have better checked the date on the WIC check? Yeah, she probably should have for $6.17. Should she have requested the ID when the woman's trying to cash the check? Yes, yes, she should have. Does this cause loss to the employer? Yes. Are they within their rights to fire her? Yes. But to deny her workers' comp, I think, was just fundamentally wrong. And the state Supreme Court agrees. What do you think? And if you've ever been in this situation, um, the the argument now, what's happening is that this this ruling will now, I think, make it a lot harder to deny unemployment compensation to people who are fired simply because they make mistakes as opposed to people who are fired because they, they actively steal or you know engage in overt misconduct. This was the, the woman just made some mistakes. But I think this is a fair ruling. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you've ever been through the unemployment comp process, if you've ever applied for it, all right, th- does it seem fair that she should have been denied unemployment comp simply because... You know, she screwed up a relatively handful of times over a two-year period. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 943, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Nine forty-seven, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in the next hour of the program, we're going to have an interview with a representative from a prominent local organization that has been victimized by computer hacking and it's about ready, in my opinion, to be victimized again. We'll tell you that story that's coming up in the next hour of the program. Right now, we're talking about th- this decision by the state Supreme Court yesterday that uh, really has broadened how you can qualify for unemployment compensation. It was a, involved a case involving a cashier from a Walgreens who, over the course of two years, tens of thousands of transactions, made eight errors total. 
um, including, okay, she took a check for $6.17 from the, the WIC account, and it was, uh, it was dated a couple days later. Shouldn't have done that. She failed to ask for identification for one check. Turned out that it was uh, a stolen credit card or stolen credit card. Um, so she, she made various mistakes, but eight over the course of a couple-year period. She was fired by Walgreens. She doesn't challenge the fact that Walgreens had a right to fire her. She applied for unemployment comp, and they fought it. And yesterday, the Supreme Court essentially said, well, you know, th- this, is, this isn't fraud. This isn't substantial misconduct. This is just ordinary mistakes. And I think the court got it right. Bob in Brookfield. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, not only did the Supreme Court get it right, but really shame on Walgreens. Um, I, I read that there was about 80,000 transactions yep. that she was involved in. Yeah, now and I, you can imagine that she's on her feet six, eight hours a day, however many, you know, people, you know, running the things through the scanners. Yeah, <laughs> lots well, of, yeah. In, in my younger days, I used to do some of that, not at a Walgreens, but here, here's what you got. Now you got 10 people in line. Hey, I want to pay half of it on cash. I want to pay half on a credit card. I want to pay half on a credit card. I want to pay half on my state card or whatever you have. Right. Now you got people getting angry. I mean, it's, it really is a hard job, and for her, if you look at her batting average, I guess you might call it. Right. I, I think she actually, over the two years, did a pretty darn good job, and I would ch- challenge any of Walgreens management to step up there, do 80,000 transactions, and see how they score. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, and look, I'm not going to defend Walgreens one way or the other. I, I think what Walgreens was looking at is that she... You know, they had some procedures like, you know, that, and, and again, like what, what ultimately got her fired was she, she failed to ask for ID on some credit card purchase, and it was like 400 bucks. And I think they said, hey, you're just not following our rules. But, but I guess I'm with you. I can understand how that would happen. But I also am with you. Eight, eight inadvertent mistakes over the course of two years and 80 plus thousand transactions. That, <laughs> All right, if they decide to fire you, it certainly doesn't seem like it's something that they should deny you unemployment compensation for. Exactly. Great show. Yeah, thanks. thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And that's and that's what the court ended up up saying in this case. And look, and I I guess I was kind of surprised that this was the issue because I have a lot of friends who do litigation when it comes to unemployment compensation, and almost everybody gets unemployment compensation unless Unless you steal, <laughs> really, uh, unless you steal or destroy company property or things like that, in general, you're, you're going to get unemployment compensation. And the fact that they're trying, they were trying to deny it based on somebody who, uh, again, at best was was sloppy, making inadvertent errors, and most of which were kind of minor errors. To me, it just doesn't seem to be right. And this isn't an anti-business aspect, and I do understand that this has the potential to open things up to make it easier for people who are fired simply because they aren't necessarily good at their job as opposed and and, and again you can argue whether eight mistakes and 80,000 transactions mean you're not good at the job but it makes it easier for people to collect unemployment compensation if if they're sloppy and you might think that that's not right but that's really what unemployment compensation is for you know if people get hired and then they don't work out it's to give them a little bit of a buffer till they find their next job. And this is one where, apart from the merits of whether she should be fired, I think the court got it exactly right when it comes to this. And does kind of underscore what a difficult job being a cashier is. 951, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.
It's 9.54, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers' NL Central road trip continues tonight as they visit PNC Park for the first time this season. Mr. Baseball Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering begin our coverage of Brewers Pirates at 5.30, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Once again, we are watching the weather because there's a major weather system that's been moving through the East Coast. I think it was the one that hit the Brewers, too, um, in St. Louis. We fortunately missed the rain out here, but uh, we'll continue to keep you updated on that. Matter of fact, somebody we're going to be talking to in the next hour... Um, I, I hope it's at the start of the hour because we had originally made arrangements to talk about 10.05, 10.10, but uh, they were flying to Washington, D.C., and the note, my note said, well, the, the airport Washington was closed because of bad weather, but apparently it's open now and they have landed. So, yeah, coming up in the next hour, I've got this interesting story about a, a very prominent local organization that was the victim of some criminal activity and... Now something else is going to happen, which in my opinion is victimizing the victim. But we'll tell you all about that coming up in the next hour. I want to give you an update on something I I've, was talking about earlier this week. Uh, the cocaine mom law for the last 20 years, Wisconsin has had a law on its books, which essentially says if in order to protect an unborn child, if you have a mom, who is a habitual, essentially a habitual drug user, who refuses to stop, thereby endangering the life and or health of the unborn child, what authorities can do is they can move in, they have to make a showing in front of a judge, but they can move in and they can essentially put the mom in protective custody till she gives birth in order to lessen the likelihood that the child is going to be born with cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine or whatever in their system. And everybody understands that if you have children that are born to drug-abusing parents, um, the, the, the likelihood or the possibility or the potential that these kids are going to be born with severe problems is just you know off the charts. So we've had this law in effect for 20 years. A very liberal federal judge in Madison who's been at the center of several decisions that, candidly, I just I don't think are going to stand up on appeal, most notably you know, striking down various aspects of Wisconsin's election reform laws, and I don't think anybody thinks he's going to be affirmed on, on that. The case has been argued in the Seventh Circuit. But anyhow, this judge takes this 20-year uh, law. His name is James Peterson. He's a federal judge. He was appointed by President Obama, I want to say in 2014, could have been 2013, but he he then now strikes down this law and says, okay, this is unenforceable, it's too vague, nobody knows what these different terms mean. Now, this has been a law that's been on the books for 20 years. doesn't just strike down the law as it, opposed, as it applied to the person who was suing, but just says, I think this is too vague. Really nice. I mean, so really nice. So now, if this is ultimately upheld, essentially the state is in a situation of allowing drug-abusing mothers to declare open season on their unborn children. Now, the state is appealing this, and I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, and I believe that the judge will probably be reversed. But you never, you never know. In any event, the state goes to the judge, and they say, hey, wait a second. All right, you've issued this ruling. You've thrown out this 20-year-old law that you've now found this, this problem with. Put a stay on this. Allow us to keep the present system until a higher court gets to decide whether you are right or not. Um, and the judge, well, issued a partial stay, but just a partial. Um, what he said is he'll give a limited short-term stay 
for ongoing cases involving pregnant women, um, they can continue to prevent the disruption of care already being provided, but otherwise no stay thus far moving forward. So again, this is this is what happens when you have federal judges who decide that they are going to act as super legislators. I think this is a very, very bad decision. Like I say, I think it allows open season on unborn children. And I, I hope, I really hope, for the sake of the state and for the sake of these unborn children, that this decision ends up getting reversed. And this isn't an abortion case. This is not what this is. This is about, if you take, accept the premise that if you had a mother who gives birth to the child and then tried to give that child cocaine after they come out of the womb, everybody would agree that there is something wrong with that. So why is it wrong if, you know, a week before birth, the mother is ingesting cocaine that's going to be end up in the kid's system? Why is that okay? That's, I think, an interesting question to ask the judge. It is 959, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This is a story that has been flying way under the radar screen. For the last several months, a prominent local organization has been the victim of a what I consider to be a significant crime. And now there's some developments that lead me to believe that the, the victim is going to be perhaps victimized again. We're joined on the line by the president of the Bradley Foundation, Rick Raber. Rick, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Nice to be with you. Um, first of all, let's talk a little bit about what the Bradley Foundation is. A lot of people have probably heard of it, but maybe don't exactly know what it is and how it operates. Uh, Jeff, it's a wonderful institution for the city of Milwaukee and for the state of Wisconsin. It was formed in the mid-1980s after the old Allen Bradley Company was sold to Rockwell, and some of the proceeds of that sale were uh, infused into the foundation. So, th- so this really began with Lind and Harry Bradley decades and decades ago, who created a, a wonderful company for Milwaukee, and uh, the, the benefits of that company building are still being felt by the city today. Uh, it's, a, it's an organization, a foundation of about $900 million. We make uh, roughly 400 grants a year, 40 to $50 million a year. And since inception, we've uh, contributed more than $300 million to the city of Milwaukee in, in a variety of ways, everything from helping out with the construction of Miller Park to uh, helping to build the Calatrava edition at the Art Museum and many, many small, wonderful organizations in the city we support. Uh, These are the unsung heroes, the people in the central city that are really dealing with the tough problems facing our communities, such as uh, drug and alcohol addiction or trying to find a home to live in or uh, working with kids who are going through the juvenile justice system. Bradley's quietly supported these organizations for decades, and and these organizations don't ask for... uh, you know, glory or, or praise or anything. They just go about their business every single day mm-hmm. addressing the really, really tough problems facing our community. Yeah, I, I know, for example, I mean, you support an organization that's designed to help try to find uh, I- employment for people who have criminal records, which is, of course, a, a huge issue in this city and a lot of other cities as well. It's a great organization called Community Warehouse, and, and they're employing people that couldn't otherwise get a job. They're getting their lives straightened out. Uh, often people with criminal records, and slowly but surely these people rejoin and become contributing parts of our community, which is fantastic. It's a great organization. Now, I know the Bradley Foundation also concerns itself sometimes with, with, with policy and analyzing, you know, impacts of different policy decisions and things like that, right? 
We do a lot of work around the country. Uh, our, our four main areas of, of focus are constitutional order. That means separation of powers. That means individual liberties. We focus on free trade, entrepreneurship, innovation. Uh, we focus on reimagining and reforming education, both higher education. Of course, Bradley has been instrumental in the school choice movement, which really started in Wisconsin. And then we work particularly in Milwaukee on rebuilding the fundamental institutions of civil society. That means family. That means churches. That means neighborhoods. The non-governmental glue that has really made America an exceptional country over the years. Now, Rick, this is a story that it, it happened a few months ago, and it got a little bit of attention, but really not much. Your the, the Bradley Foundation was was the victim of computer hacking, right? Yes, there was an unauthorized intrusion into our server in late October. Uh, to this day, we still don't know by whom. Uh, and, and the result of that is that our private proprietary information is now public. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a sinking feeling when you when you hear this news. It, you really feel violated. It's not unlike uh, if someone breaks into your house or steals your laptop or steals your identity. That's exactly what happened to the Bradley Foundation. So the hackers oh. essentially got access to to pretty much all of your documents, everything ranging from personnel files and salary information on employees to you know emails between board members and things like that. I mean, it was pretty much a complete hacking, huh? Uh, pretty much everything, not so much emails, but uh, all of our deliberations. We make a lot of decisions on grants. That's obviously private information uh, that, unfortunately, has now become public. Um, the hackers attempted to essentially illegally take a large amount of money from one of your bank accounts. Is, am I correct? Uh, th- they did. It was really pretty bizarre when you think about it, but they fraudulently produced a letter under the name of our chief financial officer uh, instructing one of our financial institutions. We, we invest our endowment, so we have a lot of financial institutions, but instructing this financial inf- institution to send $150 million to the Clinton campaign, which, first of all, is illegal, and second of all, you know, look, we're a conservative foundation. Even if it was legal, we were not about to send $150 million to the Clinton campaign. But it was clearly a fraudulent effort to try to impact something. After you learned of the fact that you had been hacked, I, I assume you, you contact law enforcement and, and try to see what they can do to help you. We, we did everything that almost anyone who's been a victim of this does. We hired lawyers. We hired forensic experts. We contacted the FBI. Uh, we, we did everything to shut it down, and we're doing everything to make sure this doesn't happen again. There are no guarantees that someone else won't be successful, but uh, certainly we're in a, in a more secure place than we were last year. Okay, so the bottom line is all this different proprietary information that you're talking about has now been stolen from yeah. from you, from but you being the Bradley Foundation, and it's out there floating around. My understanding is some of this is starting to surface now? Oh, it is. Uh, the, there will be some articles in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in the coming days using this information, and I, I, I truly do question uh, the ethics of journalists of, of any sort using information and writing stories and selling newspapers based on information that they clearly know was uh, obtained illegally and was not authorized. 
So what appears that happened is is these hackers who stole this information from you have disseminated this to journalists, including like the yes. Journal Sentinel, and they're going to yes. use that as the basis for stories. That's correct. Um, have you discussed this with reporters at the paper and and raised questions about the ethics of of using documents that they know are stolen to to write stories? Uh, I have. Uh, I, I think they continue, uh, plan to continue to write the stories. Uh, they claim to have talked to their editors about it and have concluded that there's a public interest in this. It's really a sad commentary if, if that's where we are in today's society, where stolen documents, stolen records become the basis of stories and become the basis of um, uh, reports probably designed to sell newspapers. Now, there's nothing, just so I'm clear, there's nothing in the documents that were stolen from you, from you being the Bradley Foundation, which would indicate that there was any malfeasance or misfeasance or criminal activity going on at the Bradley Foundation. This is just your, this is just notes of deliberations on grants or things like that, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. The Bradley Foundation is scrupulous in its compliance. We report every grant we make every year. Uh, we report that to the public. Uh, the Bradley Foundation has done absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, so, and, and, and frankly, I don't think the reporters are going to claim otherwise, but, but absolutely nothing of that sort dealing with the Bradley Foundation. But nevertheless, it becomes an issue in, in your mind and for other people because these are, these are, as you were saying, private proprietary documents that were stolen by someone or some entity that if they were caught would presumably be looking at a series of felonies but now have disseminated that information and that private proprietary information is going to be spread across the news by a supposedly responsible media outlet. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Do you have any recourse for things like this? Well, I'm told by our lawyers that that unfortunately we really don't. Uh, I mean, this whole issue of cybersecurity and cyber crimes is something that uh, I think our legislators, our, our governmental officials have to take a hard look at. Uh, we're in a different world today, and, and the opportunity to do this happens more and more often. Everyone is a, a possible victim, uh, and everyone has to go to great expense to protect their proprietary information. In our case, uh, obviously, uh, we were victimized, and, and now we have to deal with the consequences. And there is information out there that, frankly, shouldn't be. Um, but we're going to read about it in the paper. Hmm. You see, what I'm as a former federal prosecutor, what what I have so much trouble with this whole concept is that um, if if somebody broke into your house and stole your TV, and then I bought that TV from a guy you know in an alley, I that that TV it's still yours. I wouldn't be able to keep it. Um, you you can't sell the stolen thing and and use it to prosper. This, to me, again, seems to be the, the equivalent of that. Somebody steals property, disseminate, di- disseminates it to other people, and then they put it out there with no, with no complications or no cause or problems at all. It just doesn't seem right to me. doesn't seem right to me either. doesn't uh, seem fair, and, and you really do feel violated. Um, Rick Graber, the president of the Bradley Foundation, thanks so much for joining me this morning. I do appreciate thanks. it. Thanks very much, Jeff. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's Rick Graber. And this is, this is something I have been railing about, and, and this, this is a local story, but it is something that I have been railing about for the last several months. And it is a bipartisan thing. It, it's, 
Remember how outraged people were that there were the leaks and the attacks on the Democratic National Committee and the stuff that was stolen and then that was was released? And, of course, media outlets. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me take a quick break. Then I'll come back with more detailed thoughts on this. It's 1020, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 22, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We just uh, was talking to Rick Graber, who's the president of the Bradley Foundation. If you're just tuning in, what happened is um, several months ago, the Bradley Foundation, which is a major philanthropic and public policy organization operating the state that's done wonderful things, particularly for the city of Milwaukee, um, was the victim of, of a hack. Um, computer hackers, and they don't know where they were from, broke in and stole all the proprietary information. They just got into the servers, got information ranging from employees and salary data to, you know, notes of minutes and things like that. Um, they tried to use the information to transfer $150 million from Bradley, from Bradley Foundation bank accounts to the Hillary Clinton campaign. That was stopped, all right? But this, this, all the stolen information has been out there. It is now surfacing, apparently, um, some of it, if not all of it, was given to reporters from the Journal Sentinel. They're going to be writing stories using this stolen information um, over the course of the next couple of days. And the president of the Bradley Foundation is going public about this. Unfortunately, there's not a lot that you can do unless you can prove that the people who are going to be using the information actually stole it, which isn't the case. But you're, you're, you've seen this happen over and over again. And I... Hondo's producing a show today. I, I always get asked. I mean, I understand that there's people like in the print media and stuff who say, for those of us who do what I do for a living, well, they're, they're just entertainers. They're talk show hosts, and they're not journalists. And I never get hung up on labels, and that, that's fine. I mean, my tax returns, it says, what's your job? I say radio personality. That's it. I never get hung up on this. Now, I candidly think I am as much of a journalist as an editorial writer or a columnist. But, but again, I don't get hung up on, on those type of labels. But I will tell you this. If, if stuff like this is what passes for journalists, in 2017, in my opinion, you can have it. I mean, now this, I, I felt the same way, and I'm consistent. You had the Democratic National Committee that was hacked. Um, and then, so you had all these compromising things that were coming out about Hillary Clinton. Um, they distribute it. They pick some sympathetic uh, media outlets. They run with it, and then it becomes public. And the media outlets say, well, it's not our fault. You know, it's, it's not our fault. We didn't steal it. So, yes, we're going to use the information and we're going to try to sell papers or generate, you know, eyeballs watching or, or whatever it is. It's not our fault. Yes, we know it's stolen, but, but we're not the ones that stole it, so we should be able to do it. You know, you saw the same thing with the Donald Trump tax returns, you know, a couple months ago. All right, somebody – now, look, I'm not alleging that the guy that got that 2005 tax return stole it. Somebody stole it. He knew it was stolen. They gave it to him, and then he runs with it, and MSNBC runs with it. This is that same sort of story. You have the Bradley Foundation. Their records are hacked. The information is stolen. It is proprietary information. If you had an employee, for example, who stole that information and tried to sell it somewhere or whatever, that employee would be guilty of of a crime, and chances are that the business to try to use it wouldn't be able to use it. That's just the way the law works. Here you have somebody who's guilty. There's a felony that's been committed. They are a victim, but the information is out there. Then it gets disseminated, and then for 
I don't know, commercial, you can, you can say public interest, but it's also commercial purposes. It ends up in the hands of media outlets who decide that they are going to run with it. Again, we're not talking about whistleblowers. This isn't the Pentagon Papers trying to expose government lying or whatever. It's just, hey, you know, we've got access to information that was obtained illegally. We think... Um, you know, it's it's interesting. We think that there's some sort of titillating value or whatever to this, so we're going to run with it. And I think it stinks. I, I really, I, I do. And I understand that what's going on in this story isn't different than the Trump thing, and it's not different than the Hillary Clinton thing. But at some point in time, I mean, I guess the best way I could look at this would be if you were violated, if you were the victim of a cyber crime. And then you find out that some media outlet has gotten access to it. They didn't steal it, but, you know, they were on the distribution chain, and they were going to try to use that to disclose stuff that was otherwise private, and they shouldn't be entitled to in the first place. My guess is you would not appreciate that. You would find that to be fundamentally wrong. It is, at this point in time, probably not illegal to do that. So you have a right, I guess, to do it. But as we frequently talk about, just because, in my opinion, you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And I really do. I I, am sympathetic when Mr. Graber talks about, you know, the ethics of using stolen information, information that you know to be stolen, even though you didn't steal it yourself, using stolen information for commercial purposes. And it just strikes me, it's one of those things that, if it's not illegal, it almost strikes me that it should be. But but again, it, it's not. So the headline of the story is, local local organization was victimized, victim of a crime, and I think you can make a strong argument that they're about to be victimized again. It's 1028 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <laughs> Thirty-four, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. The crew's NL Central road trip continues this evening as they visit PNC Park for the first time this season. Mr. Baseball Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering begin our coverage of Brewers Pirates. It's five thirty, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Before I get tied up and forget, one of my oldest and dearest friends has a zero-year birthday today, May fifth. So, to my dear friend Steve, who thought back in seventh grade? That we would make it this far. So happy birthday. Happy birthday, Steve. It is one of those zero. You know, all birthdays are significant, but the zero year ones, they have um, some special, special meaning, I, I guess. Or that's what that's what people tell me. This is from the perspective of somebody who has one of those zero year things coming up in a few weeks, I guess. Happy birthday, Steve. Um, for the last several weeks, we've been running our Follow the Brewers contest, your opportunity to win tickets to see the Brewers at Miller Park. And then once a week, we make arrangements to send somebody on the road to follow the Brewers. We have our winner for this week. Come see what's Hey, Mark. Doug Russell calling from WTMJ Radio. How are you today? Good. How are you, Doug? I'm great. Um, I'm, I'm calling to see if you have any plans for September 30th. Not yet. Well, I've got an offer for you if you're interested. Okay. Uh, I've got uh, a couple of tickets for you, all expenses paid, to see the Brewers on the road at St. Louis to take on the Cardinals. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Well, you are. Follow the Brewers winner, <laughs> sponsored by West Bend, the Silver Lining, Noodles and Company, and 620 WTMJ. Congratulations, Mark. 
Thank you. Thank uh, you very much. Who are you going to take? Uh, probably have to take my wife. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. You don't have any birthdays or anniversaries around there, do you? Knock off no, two birds with one. No. Okay, well, that's all right. It's still, an, it's still a lovely trip for the missus. Uh, are you both big baseball fans? Yeah. Have you ever seen the Brewers on the road yeah. before? I've seen them in Chicago or one other place, but not, not in St. Louis. Well, you are headed to St. Louis. Congratulations, Mark. Thank you very much. All right. Hondo. All right. Who is a married man? I was a married guy for years and years and years. What was the mistake that Mark? What was the mistake that Mark made during that particular phone call? Hondo gets it in one. Who are you going to take? Well, I, I guess I have to take my wife. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, right. Okay, Mark. Let me give you. Let me give you some free advice here. Okay, I get to take my wife. I'm looking forward to taking my wife. It's going to be tremendous. It's going to be like a second honeymoon. That's outstanding. I have to take my wife. <laughs> um, okay, so if you know Mark, give him a little stat. He has to take his wife. It's kind of like, all right, just just a little bit of advice. It's And see, this is something I've learned from doing this, doing a radio show for a couple decades. It's not so much what you say. It's kind of like how, how you say it, you know, and, and one word can make an awful lot of difference, but enjoy that. Like I say, I, this is the last week for Follow the Brewers, at least for a while. I, I would love to... Uh, do this again uh, but thank you to all the people that participated um, if you won tickets I hope you enjoy the games if you won one of the trips hope you enjoy that and a very special thank you again to our sponsors um, West Bend the Silver Lining and Noodles and Company for making this all happen so it was uh, it was a lot of fun okay I have to take my wife <laughs> you, just, you just know that he's, he's going to be hearing about that I have to take my wife yeah okay I have to hit him with that frying pan just kidding all right. I, I've i told this story before. I have been wrestling with with cutting the cord with my landline. I, I have a landline phone. I don't use it at all anymore. I mean, I, I just don't. All the calls I get, I get on my cell phone. I, I don't use the landline at all. I've been thinking about wanting to get rid of it for the last several years. One of the reasons we didn't is because at one point in time I had a need for a fax machine, and you needed the landline phone to do that. I, I don't need the fax machine anymore. And again, I can do this stuff on you know through the internet where you just I've got the scanner. I can take care of all that sort of stuff. I don't need the landline phone anymore. Um, I pay. Gosh, I hate to even admit how much I pay, but you know it's. You know, it's a little bit of money for this phone every month that I do not use. And it's simply inertia as to why I haven't done this. All right, here's something that is going on in Illinois, and I predict this is going to happen in Wisconsin very, very soon. In Illinois, people have been abandoning their landline phones, you know, the phone that's in the kitchen, the phone that's in the bedroom, in droves. In Illinois, get this, traditional landline service is now down to less than 10% of Illinois households in the AT&T territory. Only 10% of the households still have the traditional landline phones. Right now, AT&T says it has about 1.2 million traditional landline customers in the state, about 474,000 residential, about 725,000 business. All right? Um, they say they are losing about 5,000 customers a week. At the current pace, the service would wind down by attrition within five years. But AT&T is going in front of regulators and saying, look, we, we need to get out of this business. 
people don't use their landline phones anymore in any sort of significant numbers. It is costing us millions and millions of dollars to maintain the, the old landline phones, you know, the copper wires and things like that. They're saying that this is technology that consumers do not want anymore, and we are wasting hundreds of millions of dollars in trying to, uh, again, keep these things going when it's the horse and buggy. It's like, okay, the cars are here now. Everybody's driving cars. Nobody wants to, the horses and buggies anymore. So we want to be able to drop it. Um, it's down to statistically almost nothing. Now, critics are fighting this. Critics are saying, no, 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 you can't do this because there's, there's a lot of people, particularly seniors, who disproportionately rely on the landline telephone service, and if you take it away, they will be hurt. Right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have a very definitive take on this. I will share it with you, and we will discuss when we come back. But, but all right. If AT&T were to come in and say, we want to discontinue landline service in Wisconsin, like they're doing in Illinois, should they be allowed to do that? We discuss next. It's 1041, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1045, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, here's what's going on with AT&T in Illinois that offers the landline services, you know, the poles in the backyard and the hard wire that comes into your house. Um, they are down only about 10% of telephone customers left in Illinois continue to use landlines. And the majority of those are, are businesses. They're down to like 474,000 residential uh, units. Um, they're losing 5,000 customers a week. People are just deciding we're going to get rid of our landline. And what AT&T is saying is we want, we want permission to stop offering landline service because it costs us millions and millions of dollars to maintain these we're we're losing a ton of money it costs us millions and millions of dollars to maintain this this aging service that most people are now starting to say no we we don't you know we don't want it anymore now it's meeting some resistance because there's some people that don't want to give up their landline phones but it does appear to be what's happening it is the wave of the future and I think that they're going to probably be making the same argument here. We're discussing what would happen if you lost your landline phone. Lucy on the west side. Lucy, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Hi. I'm one of those old ladies that still has a landline, (laughs) but it's not because I'm an old lady. It's because the reception on my cell phone inside my house is so lousy. I have a good T-Mobile service, um, but inside the house, um, you, you have a medical emergency or try to deal with people on on medical issues and my cell phone was cutting out all over the place mm-hmm. and I I gave up and called back on the landline long distance I'm helping a, a man in Madison and he was in the hospital and until they can guarantee that the cell phone service is really really reliable I think they ought to have to keep the landline as a backup and I pay a lot I pay $50 a month what about what about the fact that it's not commercially viable because most people are making the decision to get rid of the landlines? Well, I guess I look at it like a safety net public utility um, sort of thing. There are some things, and I look at public transportation the same way, that there are some things that maybe should be subsidized. Again, the day that, they, that someone can guarantee that the cell phone reception will be as good and reliable as that old landline, then I get it. How long do you play it out? I, let, okay, let, let's use the Illinois number because I, I have those in front of me. Um, right now, it's, it's down to only 10% of 
of households using this. They say they're losing um, 5,000 households a day. They say right now there's 470,000 residential units. What, what if it? What happens when it gets to 300 or 200 or 100? Is it some point in time where there's you? You say, okay, look, you don't have to have it for that last hundred thousand dollars. The people, the hundred thousand people, the the folks who are clinging on to it. Yeah, I mean, there is a point when you say we got to pull the plug, but I would analogize this a little bit. Remember the big switch over to digital a few years ago with mm-hmm. the TVs, right? Well, the public was really, really well prepared for that, right? And by the time they did it, um, the technology really was better, right? I mean, I know there's some people that just, you know, I don't want to fool with a cell phone, blah, blah, blah. It's, for, for a lot of us, it's not that. It really is, for me, it was an issue of safety. Got it. No, I understand, because of the use. Okay, thanks for call. 414-799-1620. This is, see, this is the reality that, that people are facing. And I understand that there's a lot of folks who don't want to give up their landlines. And I'm not suggesting that this is going to happen, you know, tomorrow. I, I'm I'm not. But... AT&T, at least AT&T in Illinois, is pushing this, is pushing this, you know, big time. Uh, let's see, on our text line, Jeff Ventosa writes, they should definitely stop offering. I've been without for as long as I can remember, and I'm sick of companies trying to get me one. People with bad reception should talk to their cell phone provider. Mine was bad on my former phone. Okay, 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think? Uh, I work for AT&T. Okay. Um, and, you know, when they talk about getting rid of landlines that that and maintaining, a lot of what they're doing is they're going from the landline, the, what we call a landline, to voice over IP. Right. So if you have Internet, you can have phone. Right. Because that's, that's the way they want to go. But as far as the maintenance goes and stuff like that, we still have to maintain those lines for our U-verse service. Um, our special service, you know, there's a lot of still uh, copper out there that we have to maintain for that. So it's to have a landline, it, it's not that much different. The only problem is it's very costly for that, uh, you know, out of the cities, you know, the rural areas right. where, you know, it, it takes a lot of time to get there. It takes a lot of time to fix it. So there's, you know, the higher cost. So but why I is think- AT&T pushing to get out of the landline business, the, the voice the, the voice-only networks, why are they pushing so hard to get out of that business in Illinois? Well, I think that a lot of it is they want to do it's more of a streaming thing. Like, they want to get right. out of DirecTV. They want to get out of, you know, uh, services like that so they can stream everything. Right. And that's eventually the way it will be. But you can st- you'll can you still be able to get a phone line through that, but you have to have Internet. Yes. And the majority of people, and what they're doing is they're making it more, Internet more readily available and being able to go further to give you internet and then they won't have to give you you know then quote the landline because you'll have voice over ip you know it'll be done by your internet instead of you know by you know by the extra copper wires because they actually need we're we're kind of running low on copper wires Mm -hmm. because we're doing what we call the bonded uh bonded pair uh installs for internet for higher speeds right which instead of two two wires for a, a dial tone it takes four wires what percent so that what, would free up right those. what percentage of the business would you say the traditional landline phone you know the voice only phone you know what I'm talking about what percentage of the business would you say that is versus i got to imagine it's a small percentage versus you know the, the other stuff the internet things it, yeah it, it is but but there's also you have to realize there's also st- 
still a ton of, quote, landlines. Um, you know, for instance, fire alarms run off of landlines. Right. Um, br- uh, right. Ankle bracelets, you know, for... Lots of bur- burglar alarms, I think, right? A lot of... Lo- right. Yes. Yeah. You know, most there's a lot of that stuff, life alerts. A lot of that stuff all runs off of landlines, elevators. You know, so, you know, it's going to be really hard unless they can come up with the technology to be able to, uh, you know, use for those services. There is a ton and ton and ton of businesses that use them for that purposes. Ten years you know, a lot from of them now, are bringing fiber in, but yeah, ten years from now, will we still see the traditional landlines for like the voice-only phones? Will those still be offered? Do you think? You know, it, it's hard to say because we we get told all the time it was you know twenty twenty we're getting rid of landlines. Well, now you know are getting rid of the you know landline, right. copper landlines, and then and then it, the last we heard it was you know twenty twenty five. You know, it, it keeps jumping up. Every few years, right. you know, they keep pushing the deadline. So within ten years, you know, they're probably if they have a way of a workaround for say, then there's probably a good chance that there won't be very many, there won't be any right. if they can find a workaround. And the way technology has been moving and has, as fast as it's been moving, you know, that's a good that's a good possibility that they'll figure these other things out that uh, you know to be able to get rid of them. Right. They're, they're going to sort of go the way of uh, telephone booths, for example, or the pay telephones or things like that. Yeah, right. Now, now, no, that, that, that's, I mean, see, that's, that's kind of the example. I, and I guess I, I hope I'm not dating myself too much. But, you know, there, there used to be this time when you, you, we had, they had these things called phone booths, you know, where, where if you needed to make a, a phone call and you were outside the house, you had to find the phone booth and go in. Or if you were traveling at the airport, you had these, these actual these pay telephone things. And, you know, now, I mean, good luck trying to find a phone booth. Good luck trying to find a pay phone somewhere. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Terry in Wauwatosa. Terry, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am well, thank you. Are landlines going to go away? I, I hope not. I love my landline. I also have a cell phone. But for the sake of, like, smaller children, six and under, I mean, our kids aren't allowed to have cell phones with all the social media and all that. Right. So the house phone is really nice. And the other thing is uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm home a lot. I talk on the phone. I don't like having an earpiece in my ear. I'd rather talk on the house phone than on my cell phone. <laughs> right. No, I – well, no, and I, I – and – there's no question. For example, when when I do interviews with people on the radio, I always say, "Hey, do you have a landline?" Because it sounds better if they're on a landline than it does, you know, if people are on a on a cell phone. At the same time, with, with these with these people, with the large number of people that are just deciding they they just need the cell phone, do you think we're going to see landlines five years from now? Uh, you know, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, That's all I can say I sure hope so. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, thanks. Well, and again, that's that, that's it. And what, what struck me about this is we live in an era where, where things just change so so radically. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about, okay, we, we talk a lot about newspapers and about how very few people under the age of 35, you know, actually get hard copies of newspapers anymore and how the classified ad sections have just completely and totally shrunk because that that's you don't go to the classified ads, you go to Craigslist or you go to whatever. It's just how that's changed. What struck me as being so interesting about this story is that, you know, AT&T in Illinois is saying, hey, we're losing 5,000 landline subscribers a day. It's down to less than 10% of the population. And at this rate, you're going to have, you know, nobody within five years. Now, that's not going to happen because there's always going to be that hardcore number. I guess my thinking on this is at some point in time, whether it's 
that's not going to be tomorrow, but whether it's a year from now or two years from now or three years from now, the reality is going to be that there's just not going to be enough of a core nucleus of people using the landlines to support them continuing to operate and offer that service. And, and maybe it's going to be, okay, it switches over to Internet or whatever, but I, I think that that's kind of the reality. And candidly, I mean, in my situation, I, I actually have a dear friend who says, Jeff, why do you still have the landline? You haven't used your heart. You haven't used your phone your phone that is the one at the house, you haven't used it for the better part of a year, have you? And if you haven't used it for a year, why are you continuing to pay for it? And I don't have a good answer to that. It's 1056, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eleven oh eight, Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. Week in review is coming up. Um, just a quick programming note: I'm taking a couple days off. Uh, nothing special. Just a matter of fact, it's um, just going to just take a couple days off. Monday and Tuesday, I will be back on Wednesday. I don't think I have any more vacations scheduled after that. But uh, the folks at Scripps are good enough to give me some time off, and so trying to take a day or two here and there, and hopefully the weather will cooperate. Maybe get a little bit, a bit of golf in, something like that. Looking forward to it. So there's a couple things I want to mention before the program ends, just to update you on things. I, I was going through my notes, and there, there's so much that goes on in the world that a lot of times I, I think we we lose track of, of it. You know, what, what's what's happening here? And so just want to do a couple updates. The Brendan Dassey case. Remember Brendan Dassey? He was, of course, the nephew of Stephen Avery. He was convicted in connection with the murder of Teresa Halbach, based largely on his confession. The case went through the courts in Wisconsin. The confession was upheld. Then it went, uh, you had a, an appeal, a, a habeas corpus petition was the technical term of it, which was filed in front of a magistrate judge. Magistrate judges, they're not, they're not like real judges, Uh, that are confirmed by the U.S. Senate, but they're they're hired by judges that are confirmed, appointed by the president, and confirmed by the Senate. They're they're hired to do, like, preliminary work and things like that. And one of the the things that they do is is prisoner appeals because everybody – I don't want to say everybody – many, many, many people who get convicted – go through the state court system, lose their appeals because they've got nothing but time on their hands – they file federal appeals trying to say, hey, my federal constitutional rights were violated. These are almost never granted. Not never, but almost never. And everybody will remember there was a federal magistrate judge in Milwaukee, relatively new, who decided, yes, I, I think regardless of what the Wisconsin court said, I think that Brandon Dassey's rights were violated, the cadet confession was involuntary, and essentially ordered him to be released. That was last year. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals put put a hold on that, said we're not releasing him pending appeal. To me, that was sort of a tell, indicating that the court wasn't convinced that the magistrate was right, and they weren't in a hurry to let somebody who had been convicted of the brutal murder of a young woman out on the streets. So they put a hold on that release order pending further developments. The case was argued in early February. Matter of fact, it's been three months. I think it was February 14th, so a week from Saturday. It will be, you know, three months. And there was all sorts of speculation as to what is the court going to do. Now, just to give you an update on this case, 
And you have to be careful because, as I always said, you could go broke really quickly trying to bet on what courts are going to do and guess what, whether it's a Supreme Court or an appellate court, you, you could go broke trying to guess what they were going to do. At the argument, the Brendan Dassey argument, um, the judges, the three-judge panel was very active. They asked questions of both sides. And, and honestly, as I was reading the coverage after the argument, um, people saw what they wanted to see in it. If there are people that think that out there that, oh, Brendan Dassey has just been railroaded, well, then they got support for, from some of the questions the judges asked. If, like me... You believe that he's guilty as you know what, and this conviction should be affirmed. You know, you could point to things that the judges ask to give you support for that. One of the things that I always look at in criminal cases, and like I say, now it's been three months since the argument, is how quickly does the Court of Appeals rule? Let me explain. If, if there is a situation where somebody is what, – what happens is after the oral argument, which in this case was February 14th, the judges go back. Uh, my understanding is they have a conference immediately after the oral argument where they vote as to how they are going to decide. And then what takes a lot of time is then they decide who, uh, which of the judges is going to write the opinion. And then it takes a long time to write the opinion, and then you circulate it to the other judges, and they get the chance to agree or disagree, and you discuss these type of things. But pretty much the result is known, at least to the judges, after the oral argument. My experience has been, again, with the caveat that you could go broke trying to guess what a court appeals is going to do, my experience has been that if you're dealing with a situation where somebody is in jail, where somebody is in custody, and the justices or the judges or whoever think that they are wrongfully being confined, in other words, think the conviction is going to be overturned or whatever, typically you get the decision quicker, more quickly than you would if they've decided, hey, we're going to affirm the conviction, the person's going to stay in jail. If the person's going to stay in jail, the person's going to stay in prison, there, there's no rush to get a, a, an opinion out because, well, they're, they're in prison and they're not getting out. In contrast, if this makes sense, if, if you have a panel of judges who believes, my God, this, this guy should not be in prison. He, he's there on a, a wrongful confession or the evidence is insufficient. My experience has been that the result, the decision tends to come out quicker. So I've kind of been following this case, watching different things. And again, it, it's been it'll be three months in one week. Um, I, my sense is for people who are trying to read the tea leaves, my sense is that the longer it takes to issue an opinion, the more likely it is that the Brandon Dassey conviction will be affirmed. I, I believed at the time that if there was going to be a reversal of the conviction, if they were going to say, hey, he's entitled to a new trial or he's entitled to be released, that we would have seen an opinion or at least a, a cursory decision. Sometimes what happens is you get a, a short decision that says released, conviction, you know, overturned, whatever opinion to follow. So the more time that goes by, my sense is the more likely it is that the conviction is going to be upheld. So for anybody wondering what's going on in the Dassey case, uh, no, no news so far. For people who think the guy belongs in jail, my sense is that no news is good news. Now watch him come out with a decision this afternoon overturning the conviction. But 
That, that, that's clearly possible. I'm just saying trying to read the tea leaves when you're dealing with criminal convictions, the longer it goes, my experience has been the more likely it is that the person is going to stay in prison. Another court decision came out today. Has some people in the city of Milwaukee extremely happy? Has some unhappy? We'll discuss. Stick around. It's 1115. 1118, Jeff 620 WTMJ. You know why they're asking that, Hondo. We have a number of requests on our WTMJ talk and text line for my Kentucky Derby pick. The Kentucky Derby, of course, is tomorrow. That is because if you are a regular listener to this program, you know that I – I mean, I I like to handicap horses and things like that. And the Kentucky Derby is one of those races where you want to find out the horses I like. And then you want to go the other way because chances are, I mean, look, it's a 20-horse field. So, I mean, I understand this is it. Find out the three or four horses that I like and then just exclude them. Bet on other horses. And chances are, given my luck with the Kentucky Derby, you'll you'll be doing well. The the thing I do every year and – I just, just friends would shake their heads. Is that there's like this daily double. This afternoon, they have um, the Kentucky Oaks, which is the three-year-old fillies, the female horses, and then, then the Kentucky Derby. What I will often do, and as a matter of fact, I might do this today, is you know I will bet I will bet the Oaks Derby daily double, and, and I will pick one or two horses in today's race and then pair it with all the horses in the Derby, meaning – you know, you're, you, you know that you're going to win something if you can figure out how to win today. I've been pretty good historically at the Kentucky Oaks. I have not been good at the Kentucky Derby, and I have not fully handicapped the race. But in my effort to help you, if you are going to play Make Money, I will tell you two of the horses that I like, and then you can, you can judge accordingly. A horse that I like that is under the radar, and there's all sorts of reasons not to bet the horse – it's, it's a horse called Looking at Lee. It, it's running from the number one spot, the number one through 20. That is a, that's about as bad a post position as you can draw because you're going to get buried by all the other horses. The horse is going off at 20 to 1. I love the jockey on the horse. It is a closer. I, I, it's, I'm, I'm not saying the horse is going to win, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it come in in the top three. So that's one of the horses I like. Looking at Lee, be warned. Um, one of the other horses I like is um, like one of the second or third or fourth favorites. It's a horse called Irish War Cry. It's going off from the 17 hole. Um, it's going off at 6 to 1. So, I mean, I like Irish War Cry. I like Looking at Lee. Um, the favorite is a horse called Classic Empire. I think if I was going to do a trifecta, those three, and I'd have to find one more. But looking at Lee and Irish War Cry are two besides the overall the overriding favorite that I like. So again, be warned, be warned. If you see me, um, if you see me down at my, with my friends at Potawatomi, you know, placing a bet um, again for the Kentucky Derby at least. Ask where I bet on, and then go the other way, and chances are that you're you're going to be pretty good. But looking at Lee. Uh, going off at 20 to 1, I, I like the horse. Not saying it's going to win, but there's something that intrigues me about that horse. We will see how that all happens. All right, um, update on another story that we have talked about. The, the city of Milwaukee fought tooth and nail to try to keep its residency rules in place. And the argument was that if, if city employees aren't forced to live within the city, it will destroy the city. All the employees will leave the city, the tax base will crumble, etc., etc., etc. I always thought that argument was silly. 
because you're not going to be – first of all, the vast majority of city employees want to live close to where they work, so they're going to stay. Secondly, if you're a homeowner, you can't just – abandon your property you're not going to be able to leave until you can find a buyer and and i didn't i just never believe believe that there was going to be this huge exodus moreover i have always believed that the residency rules hurt the city's ability to retain good quality employees let's take an example of a, a, a police officer or something wants to work maybe grew up in milwaukee etc wants to work in the area but marries somebody who lives in Wauwatosa, for example, and or you just want a little bit you want to you, you want to get out out from under MPS. Let's be honest. And so you got two kids, so you want to continue working for the city, but you just don't want to send your kids to MPS schools, so you want to move. And under these residency rules, the choice essentially forced you to make that decision between staying in the city um, and contributing as an employee or leaving. So I just, on principle, I've never really favored the residency rules. Um, so the state legislature took care of that. They did away with the residency rules. That upsets city officials a great deal. And so what they did, the city officials decided, okay, legislature says we can't have overall residency rules, but here's what we're going to do. We are going to require employees police officers, firefighters, and emergency workers to live within 15 miles of the city. And the argument they made for that was if there's an emergency situation, if you've got a riot in Sherman Park and we need to call people in, well, you need to live within 15 miles of of the city so you can get here quicker. Now, the truth of the matter is I think that's bull. I mean, I, I really do. I think, you know, you could put a requirement, you you could put a requirement saying, hey, if you're on call or whatever, you have to be available and you have to be able to get to work within a half hour or whatever. You could do that without putting an arbitrary mileage limit on. But this was the city, in my opinion, their way of responding in a petulant way because they didn't like the fact that they lost the residency rules. On top of that, while this matter was going through the courts and being litigated, a number of city employees, not a large number, but some that fit into this category, they moved to different locations outside the city, but more than 15, more than 15 miles away from the city. So the city took the position, hey, you know, okay, you don't have to live in the city, but now even though you've moved, maybe you're living in West Bend, for example, for the sake of argument, now you've got to sell your place in West Bend and you have to move back so you only live 15 miles within the city. We're not going to grandfather you in. And again, I don't believe this was based on public safety or public policy. It was just Tom Barrett and the Common Council kind of having their hissy fit because they didn't like the fact that they, they could no longer force public employees to live within the confines of the city. Well, anyhow, this matter has been litigated. Seventh Circuit just came out with a decision um, upholding, first of all, the 15-mile residency rule. You don't have to live within the city if you are a police officer, a firefighter, or not an emergency worker, but you do have to live within 15 miles of the city. Um, I don't know that, that that's really grounded in reality, but it, it's it's the city... I think trying to punish workers for having the audacity to try to leave. On top of that, they also affirmed the requirement that if during the period this was being litigated, if you bought a house outside that 15-mile rule, you got to move back in to within 15 miles or you will lose your job. Uh, that I, I 
without getting into the legalities about whether the city had the right to do something like that, as we frequently talk about, just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. I don't know how many workers ultimately might decide, hey, okay, now we're going to leave the fire department or we're going to leave um, we're going to leave uh, the police department because we've moved more than 15 miles out of the city. Don't know how many people might decide that they're not going to move back. But I guess enforcing this rule right now strikes to me as being petty and mean-spirited. As to the people who left while this was all being litigated, now they're going to be in a decision to decide whether valuable, experienced employees stay or go. And the last thing the city of Milwaukee needs is more experienced police officers leaving the city. It's 1128, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Um, I'm told by some of my sources in Washington that um, these reports that you're hearing about Milwaukee County David Clark um, getting serious consideration for a, a post with Homeland Security that does not require Senate confirmation. I, I'm told by some of my sources that that's, that is the real deal, and he is getting serious consideration um, to the point that you know, maybe in the next week or two, there might be a decision made one way or the other as to whether he's going to be leaving Milwaukee. If he does, you know he is going to leave an incredibly interesting legacy, and we will definitely explore that moving forward um, if if and when it happens. Right now, he, he's still the sheriff of Milwaukee County and um, will continue to be for the foreseeable future. But um, there's a lot of smart money that says he's already got one foot out the door. It's 1134, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This is the point in the show every Friday where, well, I don't have to do all the work. Uh, I am the thorn between the two roses. It's the Week in Review. We're joined, as we always are, by Susie Falk from Falk Group Public Relations and Tracy Johnson from the Commercial Association of Realtors. I should also mention that in addition to putting this out over the radio, we are also live streaming this on Facebook Live. Go to facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ and you can you can watch radio happen, which is always fun. Good morning. Hello. you got to turn on your mics there. See? Okay, there we go. Good morning, Ms. Falk. Good morning. Tracy, Ms. Hello. Johnson. Hello, hello. Okay, a lot of different topics. Um, we were talking off the air. This has been an amazing week with stuff going on. Let's start with the big national story. Yesterday on a on a partisan vote with just a couple votes to spare, the House of Representatives passes a law which would effectively repeal and replace Obamacare. It now goes to the Senate. Tracy Johnson, good thing, bad thing? What do you think? Well, I think this is a good thing for the Trump administration to have this out there, the fact that they did put a package forward that will be voted on. Um, I think there are the devil's in the details, as it always is. Um, and I, obviously it'll go to the Senate. They're going to have changes, or maybe they'll come out with their own, and they're going to conference on this. And hopefully we'll get something that is more manageable, that will be more free market based. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a good thing. Going back, though, one one comment that I've heard talked about a lot is the fact that that we're now talking about, like, how do we get everybody 
health care. And this really started with the foundation of what Obamacare is. It's just so interesting how that conversation has evolved. Um, and now but it's we're, now an entitlement program. It's an entitlement program. And so I, I think this is going to be the interesting challenge that they have going forward. Well, you know, in the history of this country, once an entitlement program has been passed, it's never been done away with. So that's mm-hmm. the, you know, you're swimming upstream. Okay, Susie, let's talk a little bit, starting off about the politics of this. Um, mm-hmm. As the vote was being taken, you had several dozen Democrats who were ch- singing and chanting, na, 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 mm-hmm. hey, hey, goodbye, mm-hmm. indicating that they believe that this this is this vote will kill the Republican majority in in the House of Representatives. Is it that bad? Well, I don't think it's going to help in, in two years when, when it's time for election. Um, I, I think I think what's going to happen is the Senate is going to tone this down. And, you know, you asked, is this good? Is it good for the 52 million who have a pre-existing condition? Right now, it's really scary. And my husband has MS. And what I'd like to hear are the stories out there of people that can be impacted by the way the House wrote the bill. Mm-hmm. And I think the Senate will water it down so it's not quite as painful as it looks right now. When the Senate does that, okay, voters, and they have a short memory, I think they're going to feel confident that ultimately Congress, that we did the right thing. But I think that the Democrats, if they're smart, they're going to pull out the House bill and dangle it in front of the media and say to, to you know, vote, voters, look at this is how your House representative voted. They basically wanted to kick you off insurance. Is that a good thing? That's no. so interesting, though. You started the conversation about the people who have the pre-existing condition. So at the end of the day, that's what a, the, like this, these pundits are saying, that's what this is about. What about all the other people who now have to pay more for health insurance? And so it's, it's kind of, it's such an evolving conversation choices. having fewer choices i mean all the these exchanges are basically gone we're going to move to this single and payer system and and yes. that's that's a problem that's where we're heading. that's a problem so this pre-existing condition as the main focus of our conversation that that needs to change because but, that is that, not the main well, focus. one of the things i think it is, it well, is a huge deal one but of the it is not I think, the centerpiece well, one of the things i think was interesting is in wisconsin before the affordable care act you know we had you know, you had the high-risk pool. You had things like Badger Care, and I think most people and that dealt with the existence with with the, sure. the high-risk pool. I think most people who were in that system would say that worked better than Obamacare. Because you had choices. Oh, and, you know, I, no, no, I'm saying Obamacare is the right. solution. I mean, my gosh, it, it it was a good start. Okay, and it opened up the discussion. Is health care coverage? No, it made it affordable an and quality health care coverage. Is that a right? And and that's the debate we're having. And so ask your, your your listeners, you know, do you think you should have a right to affordable, quality health care coverage? That's what this debate is about. Well, is that, Tracy, is that the fair question? I mean, do you have a right to afford, and, and how do you, I mean, how do you define, if, if you ask the question that way, then the, the answer is you're talking about nationalized insurance. That's, you're talking about Canada. Yeah. You're talking about Great Britain. We, we eliminate essentially private health care. Right. Um, because, you know, there's always going to be, if you have an element of choice, I mean, there's always going to be people who choose to be insured or choose yeah. not to be insured or make those kind of decisions. I mean, is it an entitlement? Is there is there a right to insurance coverage? I don't believe there's a right. I think you should have access to health care, but I think you eliminate that or you lessen the likelihood that people will have access if you don't create a competitive marketplace. Before Obamacare, there was a competitive marketplace, right. and there were 40 million uninsured people but that most of them they, did not have But they chose the not to have Yeah, but yeah, of those 40 Maybe mil- because they couldn't pay. Well, but no, now, but, but of those four, no, but but you say that I'm, of those forty million, 
if that's the right number, and I'll assume that for the sake of argument, how many were uninsured by choice? How many were the 24-year-old professional who simply says, I don't want to pay the premiums. I think I'm healthy. I'm going to take a risk and, and just I'm just going to roll the dice. I mean, of that... How many were oh, uninsured? Yeah, but, but the other right. thing that 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 happened during this discussion is now we've we're, we're not working with companies, and, and companies don't offer health insurance anymore. You are you are placing this on the individual, so the entire conversation has been turned upside down, and I and I think people are are having to make decisions based on imperfect information and very flawed information, and I think that that. Hopefully, the Senate will put something out there that will will allow people I, I, the choice. I, I, we need free market well, I have, based I, solutions. See, I mean, I have several friends right now who don't get insurance through their employers and, and are on on the exchange. Mm-hmm. And at least in Wisconsin, I mean, what they've told me is that th- their options have pretty much dwindled down to almost nothing. You know, you you have maybe one insurer that's left, one healthcare network. You know, so that that's it. You. If, you, you you can't keep your doctor. You're you're going to be doing the one healthcare network in Iowa, which has always been one of the gold standards for this. Um, they just announced yesterday that they think all three health insurers are going to pull out. They can't afford to, to right. stay in business, and and people are are now compelled. You have to have health insurance. So again. Obamacare has set the, the 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 precedent that you start with you have to have health care otherwise you will be fine and now we start negotiating off of there which is the uh, terrible place to even start we always look to Canada and the UK for single single payer systems right and, oh doom and gloom okay well you know what we're the US we are creative and Medicare is actually a very good health plan if you know anybody who's on Medicare and I know many people on Medicare they're very pleased with it that's a government-run program I'm assuming that if we head down that path toward a single-payer plan we will learn lessons of what doesn't work from countries that have tried it and we will improve the system we're famous in this country for inventing products and solutions Tracy, shaking your that head are better mouse traps. Okay, so, so, there's no so incentive you, you, to you, do research you, and, and right. advance health care if you do not have competition so Medi- care for everybody. Eh. Well, see, the other thing is, in some respects, it's kind of the, the tail wagging the dog because the vast majority of people still get their health insurance. They're, they're not in the private market. The best, still through their employers or, you know, they work for the government and they get it through the, the government. So while, while you are talking about, I understand, millions of people, still in the overall picture, it's, it's a relatively small number. I guess I'm also wondering whether for that comparatively small number it was worth blowing up the entire system so yeah. i don't i don't but but i agree pre-existing conditions and of course in having this conversation we're not dealing with the other elephant in the room which is the rising cost of health care mm-hmm. and unless you control the rising cost of health care you know mm-hmm. all of this stuff is going to be doomed yeah, it's it's not easy it's a complicated <laughs> system i mean you look at tort reform i mean for start starting the liability of organizations and, and d- lawyers who are suing just for you know multi millions of dollars in penalty damages yeah. for in- injured due to medical devices and stuff i mean it is a messed up system no doubt about it and this we can't fix it in a 10 minute conversation okay well, <laughs> we can't even try to pretend like we know the right. half of it. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the inquest jury, the big decision on Monday recommending charges against seven employees at the county jail, and the future of Milwaukee County Sheriff. Stick around. It's 1143. Jeff Wagner, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. It's the Week in Review.
It's 1040, 10, 1147, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's the Week in Review. Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. All right, big news oh, on Monday. An inquest jury recommended charges against seven employees at the Milwaukee County Jail. Um, it is an advisory verdict. Uh, the district attorney can do what he sees fit. Susie Falk, what's going to happen? What should happen? Well, I think um, Grisham should file charges for sure. If you look at the, the what they were saying on the, on the stand, it, these these are horrible allegations of negligence and abuse. And it, I think I think he should stick though with those who are immediately responsible. I think you know if you go higher up the ladder, it becomes inappropriate. So, but I I would. So file, in other words, you trying to charge David Clark? You well, think no, right. Well, let's right. talk. No, no, okay, let's, no. Can we talk about him for a minute though? I would really like to hear from him. You know, he doesn't want to talk about this, right. and and so, but he if this were a business, and I know it's not, but we would want to hear from the CEO. This is a bit of a PR nightmare for for the county, and I would think that Sheriff Clark would want to step in and it just kind of make a big statement to say we're looking into this. This is not right. We'll We'll fix things where we can, and but where is he? Why aren't we hearing from him, Tracy Johnson? Well, and and this is part of I think there are larger investigations going on about jail deaths and not just in Milwaukee and and why is this happening? And I think what what you're seeing is is these aren't necessarily bad people per se. They're being negligent in their job, but there are a lot of other circumstances here. These are mentally ill people. These are people who are distracting the guards from maybe doing their job. Should they be turning off the water? Absolutely not. But how are we able to to deal with these people so we can actually solve for the problem instead of trying to use some of these tactics? And and I can't empathize with with these people who, who did injustice. And, and there should be justice. Mm-hmm. But how do you go about addressing for the larger problem? What... Uh, I, I look as somebody who used to work in the, the criminal justice field and who spent more than enough time in, in prisons visiting potential witnesses and things like that as opposed to a guest. I mean, I appreciate how difficult this is. I mean, th- there's not a harder job in the world to work in the corrections industry. You're you're in a situation where you're surrounded by dangerous, violent people. Disrespectful. In, right. <laughs> exactly. Who, who have done really bad things to get where they are. The, the resources are typically lacking. Um I had a friend who was, he was a warden, and, and it, it, you know, what he would say is, every time the phone rings, you think, the, nobody's calling to tell you you've done a heck right. of a job. They're just calling to tell you there's a riot or there's, there's whatever so that's going on. So, <laughs> right, it, so it's a very, very <laughs> difficult job, and I'm sensitive to that. At the same time, when you take somebody into custody, when you take away their, their liberties, you take right. the responsibility for making sure that they're going to be taken Safety. care of. The, I mean, this guy... Clear. He floods his cell. I mean, I, you know, floods his cell. I mean, he shoots somebody at the Potawatomi Casino. Floods his cell. Um, apparently mentally ill. Didn't get treatment. And even though I'm, I appreciate what a difficult job it is. I, for the life of me, don't understand how you can shut off the water to the guy's cell. Mm. Don't tell anybody. Nobody notices that there's no water in the man's cell for a week. He's supposed to be taken out once a day. I mean, I think what happened is he's big. He was dangerous. He was creating disruptions. And people just decided, oh, he, he's laying on the floor sleeping or whatever. Let's just let him go. It's not a problem. You can't not check on somebody for a week. Well, you know, that the surveillance videos, I think, they're put in place to protect both sides. You know, I think it's nice to have a historical record of what actually, you know, right. and went of course, down. Some of those went missing. Well, because, they went missing. And right. so that's negligence. Or they were that's, recorded over, you know, well, because whatever, nobody asked them That was him. a big mistake. And I think that hope, you know, hope, may, well, I don't know what that would have shown, but they should have not gotten I will be that. surprised. If yeah. there, I mean, DAs 
most DAs don't do inquests. This is a very, very rare thing. And when they do it, it's typically because they have an idea of where they want this to go. It's very clear to me that the district attorney believes that there's criminal liability on the part of some. I don't know if it's all seven, mm-hmm. and it, but I would be stunned if there's not criminal charges that come out, mm-hmm. I guess. All right, let's go to the point that you were raising, um, Susie. Uh, David Clark. My sources tell me, as well as lots of published reports, that he's on the short list for a job with Homeland Security, a job that doesn't require Senate confirmation. Mm-hmm. But he's on, on the short list for that. Um, I don't know if he's going to do that or not. But, but Tracy, what is the – let us assume that David Clark moves on to, if not bigger or better, different things in the course of the next couple months. What's his legacy going to be as the county sheriff? Well, it, it, and I've, I've always been a fan of, of Sheriff Clark because of the way that he is a, a straight talker. I think one of the things he does is he holds other electeds accountable, and people might not like that, but I think you definitely need to have some of that push and pull in a community. And I think he earned people's respect as a result of it. And I think that that's going to be his legacy. Yes, he had the skirmishes with the county executive and others. And, uh, so you think it's going to be a positive legacy when people look I do. back? I do. Oh. I think looking back, you will. And I haven't looked at the numbers, but I, I start to think about what do we do if we didn't have somebody who was so tough on crime and mm. pro-gun. Okay. And that's a, you're, that is a heavy sigh, Ms. Falk. I, I think he will be remembered, or his legacy will be, you know, he's a bombastic, um, controversial sheriff. And, you know, he's a Democrat, name only. Um, he enjoys, you know, positions of higher power, and I'm sure, you know, we're going to see him on the national stage at some point. I think what we need to remember is that um, he cost the county taxpayers about 300 and some thousand dollars in taxpayer money um, for his lawsuits against the county. Um, The county had to defend itself and they spent another something like close to a hundred thousand dollars defending themselves over these lawsuits. Um, You know, that's how I will remember him. I'll remember things like the incident with the the traveler who was, you know, basically arm lifted away from the the airport because he looked at Sheriff Clark funny. Um, You know, and he said some very inappropriate things. That's how I'll remember him. I think it's going to be a tale of two cities. I, I think, I mean, I remember when, when Scott McCallum first appointed him, and, and I, I agree with you, Tracy. I, I think I found David Clark to be a breath of fresh air. I, I thought here was a guy, law enforcement background, who who looked at a community that was dysfunctional and was willing to stand up and challenge the powers that, that be and, and say a lot of stuff that needed to be said. So I, I've I've been a fan and a supporter now, to your point, though, Susie, I think over the last couple of years, whether he's gone Hollywood or gone Washington or gone New York, uh, there's there's a lot of stuff. And, I mean, I don't care that he's out there campaigning for Trump, but it does appear to me that he's been punched out on the job of sheriff for mm-hmm. a while and that sometimes when you start to believe your own publicity, that leads to trouble. So, I mean, I think it's going to be very mixed. I think that to me the question is, are you talking about the David Clark of 2004, which I give very positive reviews, or are you talking about the David Clark of 2016, which is to me a different kind of guy? Well, so. and I got to hope that some of the some of the numbers, when you start looking at the numbers, I mean, he's been in this position for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, obviously, crime in our city is a concern. So what do those numbers look like if you don't have somebody who's really fighting for that office and for those staff? And you could be tough on crime, but you don't have to do it his way. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we come back. It's the Right Stuff Awards. This is the Week in Review. It's 1154. <laughs>
It's 11.57. Okay, very quickly. The Week in Review, um, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson, our Right Stuff Awards. Susie. Mm -hmm. Danae Davis, she's Executive Director of Milwaukee Succeeds. It's a collective impact initiative focused on preparing Milwaukee's youth for success in schools and beyond. Danae was awarded the St. Joan Antietam High School's uh, Trailblazer and Women's Leadership Award last weekend at a special event that St. Joan hosted at the school. This award acknowledges important women in the community whose lives and actions reflect the mission of the school and who serve as role models for young women. Um, I heard Danae speak upon receiving the award, and she's just an amazing individual. She's had leadership roles at other organizations, including Pearls for Teen Girls. Um, she's really impacting Milwaukee in a positive manner, um, helping you know youth succeed in their lives and doing the right thing. Congratulations, Danae. Tracy Johnson. All right, my Right Stuff Award goes to Representative Dale Kuyenga. And it goes to Dale because he put out a bold, big transportation and tax reform plan. And while it might not be perfect, it is a starting point. I think he's going to take a lot of slings and arrows for it, but good for him for doing that. I think he's going to be around for a long time, and let's see where this goes. I'm pulling a couple of my arrows out of the quiver. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. And um, my winner, uh, Justice Annette Ziegler, is almost unprecedented. Um, she collected all this money for her campaign. She ran unopposed. She's giving 70% of it back to donors. When is the last time you ever heard of anybody in politics who raised money giving it back when they weren't ordered to do so by the court. 